and welcome to this Over the Farm Gate Trade and Policy Special Podcast, brought to you by Farmers Guardian. I'm your host this week, Farmers Guardian Chief Reporter, Abby Kay. Don't forget to stay up to date with all Farmers Guardian's latest podcasts. Subscribe through your favourite platform, whether that's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast. This month, we're taking a closer look at the UK trade deal with Australia, and a little later, we'll be speaking to Georgie Stiles, New Entrance Policy and Campaigns Officer at the Land Workers Alliance, about DEFRA's consultation on lump sum retirement payments and delinking. But first, let's head down under. The agreement between the UK and Australia hasn't even been signed yet, and it's already hitting the headlines, with rumours of a spat between Trade Secretary Liz Truss and DEFRA Secretary George Eustace all over the front pages last week. Liz Truss is said to favour a deal which will reduce tariffs to zero, potentially over a 10-year period while Eustace, for his part, is calling for tariff rate quotas, which limit the amount of produce which can enter the UK without a tariff, to be introduced to protect sensitive sectors such as lamb and beef in the event that a zero tariff deal is done. The row is reported to have been so ferocious that the Prime Minister has had to step in, and there are suggestions that he's chosen to back trust. So what effect will a zero tariff deal with Australia have on the farming sector in the UK? And will an agreement like this affect the relationship between England and the devolved nations, with farmers in Scotland and Wales expected to take the biggest hit. Here with us to discuss these issues, we have NFU Scotland President Martin Kennedy and FUW's Head of Policy, Dr Nick Fennick. Thank you both for joining us. Martin, I'll come to you first. How bad would a zero tariff deal with Australia actually be for UK and Scottish agriculture? Should farmers be worried? Yes, I think. Uh, uh, good morning, Abby. Yes, I, I think we should be worried, and and it's not about no, it's not about how bad it is right now. It's how bad it could be in the future because it's an unknown. The fact it's going to be zero tariff. Nobody knows to what extent that volume could be coming in, whether it's beef, lamb, whatever product it's going to be. It could be any agricultural product. And, of course, the real concern is, um, you know, this sets a precedent for, for, for future deals in the future. And, and uh, we are absolutely concerned because we've not got the same production systems here in Scotland or indeed throughout the rest of the UK as what is the case in, in Australia. So that gives them a huge advantage. Nick, do you have anything to add on this? I mean, there's been a big focus on beef and sheep in the press, but are any other sectors at risk? I think it's absolutely right that the, that the focus has been on beef and sheep. Those are the big ones. Um, and there, I, I have no doubt there are other products that would be of concern, perhaps not for Wales, but uh, I guess maybe some fruit growers in the southeast of England may have concerns, and similarly in Scotland where a lot of fruit is grown. But I think you know the, the other issue here is the impact that it could have on our access to established markets, particularly the EU, which is of so much of importance to us, because clearly allowing certain products in and more more volumes of certain products in from Australia um, is likely to raise the barriers that are already causing problems at our ports for our exports to the EU, because the EU will want to protect its own market from uh, from a back door for Australian produce. So, you know, there's a whole sort of secondary impact of, of such a deal. And is there a risk that doing this kind of deal with Australia now will set a precedent for future trade deals? So once you offer a zero tariff um, deal to Australia, that makes it more likely that you'll have to do the same for other trading partners in future. Martin, do you want to come in on that first? Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably as much a concern as anything because, and bearing in mind this is the first standalone deal that the, the UK have actually agreed with anybody, um, because they've done this and they're trying to rush it through, 
The concern is that when it comes to making a deal with the likes of New Zealand, um, Canada, the US, wherever, again, massive countries with huge export opportunities, that cumulative effect is the bit that could really damage us. So that's why we were so keen to put some sort of limit or have some limit in place, which is which doesn't seem to be looking like the UK government are keen to, 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 to go for. So that cumulative effect is the bit that could oversupply the demand um, here and as soon as you tip that balance it's a very fragile balance as it is and that's the bit that can really affect prices in the future. Nick do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I, I agree absolutely uh, I'm afraid to say that the pace at which the government is trying to move on this for basically politically expedient reasons rather than things that are in the national or the, our nation's interest um, I mean it reminds one a bit of a, of a sad desperate divorcee in a nightclub, you know, it's, it's really pretty sad. That, um, rather than taking things slow and steady and doing things that are genuinely in the national interest. I think we've also got to remember we are the new kids on the block here. We haven't made these deals before, um, you know, not or at least not for you know near fifty years, and and, and it's that's really worrying because we've not had the you know the balls in Australia's court. They're they'll be playing hardball at this, and we're just very keen to get something over the line so we can shake hands at the G7. It's very political, so they're they're pushing to get it through without weighing up what the consequences, unintended consequences, could be. Yeah, it, it, it would be the most expensive press release ever produced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a lovely way of putting it, Nick. Um, another question to both of you then. How hard is it going to be to quantify the damage that could be done to the farming industry um, through trade deals like this? Because these things are notoriously difficult to measure anyway but they won't be happening in a vacuum because we've got big changes coming to policy as well um, in England and Wales. The removal of direct support is going to be a big issue. Um, Nick, do you want to come in first on that? Impossible uh, to absolutely quantify it, of course. Um, but, but we know that at the end of the day, price is king. You know, the studies all show that price is the real thing that people uh, go for when they're buying. So fluctuations in markets, the risk of offloading, um, under certain circumstances, we know that Australia suffers particularly from droughts. Um, all of those things will basically add to market instability as well as, a, you know, on average, a reduction in, in prices. Um, so you have this cumulative effect, which could be very acute in some years where exchange rates are in a certain direction. And, you know, maybe uh, Australia is culling a lot of ewe lambs, for example, because of, of drought, etc. Um, so you have that sort of you know, that, 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 that um, cumulative effect over the years. And this, to me, it seems it's almost like a death by a million cuts sort of scenario. Martin, do you think that will make your job to lobby government harder? Because it, it's going to be inconclusive, isn't it, in a certain sense? You're not going to be able to point to a particular trade deal and say, this is the damage that has been caused. So the, is there a greater risk of that continuing to happen? Yeah, I think you know. I hope it does. I really hope it doesn't happen. But but the risk is as 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 we go forward, and as Nick rightly says, um, price is king. That's the first sort of warning signal of we're going to have oversupply of products coming in. And we keep getting told from the UK government, but there's been an economic analysis done and taking part that shows that we will not undermine um, sort of UK farmers. But we haven't seen that economic analysis. And we've been promised that there will be protections in place. We haven't seen that. So we're fearful that the first thing we will notice, as Nick rightly says, is about the price. And they will, that, that sort of cumulative effect um, from other countries, if this sets a precedent for, for other countries' deals, will have an impact, and we're convinced that will be the case. 
and it's uh, it's, it's certainly it's, it's deeply worrying. Can I come so back as well, on that as well and, and just add that there have been these claims made by numerous ministers and, and government spokesmen uh, that that the volumes coming in will not change rapidly um, or, or significantly based on the current volumes being very low and the fact that Australia are well below quota at the moment. Uh, but those those arguments are completely spurious because we need to look at what could happen in future. And also, we need to bear in mind that if it if what they were saying was true, they wouldn't be seeking this in the trade deal. And it wouldn't be a controversy for the UK to withdraw it from their, off, you know, take it off the negotiating table. The fact is, when you look at all the evidence there is in Australia and, you, you know, you go to the evidence hearings they've had in the Australian Parliament, for example, you can see that the UK is a major, major target for them to expand their, their meat sales. Um, so, you know, the government's making very spurious arguments um, saying it's not going to have an impact because if, if it wasn't going to have an impact, they wouldn't be in the, in the deal or being discussed. Mm. I think I read that um, the biggest beef exporter in Australia said they were expecting to boost their exports tenfold. Um, what, what kind of impact would that have on the UK market? Absolutely, absolutely massive, Abby. I mean, I mean, this this is the problem. That's just one. That's just one company that's looking at the export tenfold. And, and and as Nick rightly says, if they're not worried, and if their claims of we don't need to worry, the UK um, market doesn't need, UK farmers don't need to worry about being undermined or oversupplied. If that's the case, why are they so reluctant to have a TRQ put in place, a tariff rate quota put in place? Well, you know, so it seems to me like they're saying one thing just to get the deal, and then as things change and and. And again, as as Nick said about things do change, they've got a big target in Asia just now. But political scenes change as well. And if that door does get closed, well, where's that product going to end up? Well, there's an open door here to get to get that market over. Now, the, again, the claims are that why would you come into a market where it's already expensive? It doesn't take much of a more supply to tip the balance between supply and demand. And as soon as that balance is tipped, that then lowers the price and then it becomes more economic for them to export to the likes of the UK. So that's that's the concern. And that's just, of course, this is just about the Australia deal. Again, this is setting a precedent and we're rushing this through at a speed that's, that's, that's far too quick. Um, and we don't have any statutory body like the Statutory Commission, uh, Trade Agricultural Commission in place yet to scrutinise it. I, I think as, I, I would add as well, Abby, Abby that... You know, there's another side to all of this, particularly in England, uh, I would say, because the other key source of income for farmers, um, which is direct payments, is also under attack. So it, it's the government is attacking on all sides here. Um, and Wales, as you know, is, is, is further behind, but has very similar plans to, to England in terms of, of doing away with direct support. So, you know, there's a huge uh, double whammy here where, you know, you're, you're, you're going to see reduced market prices for our produce but at the same time the thing that makes up in Wales 80% of our income is also being uh, will also be eroded under current plans and in England by the end of this year farmers will already be be losing 20% and I have to say I'm you know really quite shocked at how passive we are um, and particularly maybe over in England how passive people are because you look at what's happening with regard to far more modest plans in the EU and Irish farmers and French farmers and those in other countries are, you know, really, really angry about very mild changes compared with, you know, the, 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 particularly the, pro, uh, the programme in England. Can we just touch on a standards point for a minute? 
Um, so we've heard a lot in the press about how Australian standards aren't as high as ours. I think one of you even mentioned that earlier. Can you give a couple of concrete examples of standards in Australia that don't don't meet ours? Well, when you look at the sort of the environmental standards that we have, I mean, you know, where I am in Highland Perthshire, we're at 800 feet here. We're, we're, you know, we go to 2,500 feet on the farm. You know, 85% of, of Scotland is less favoured area. Um, uh, uh, and, and we pride ourselves in the environment. Now, it's not an area that's conducive to the size of feedlots there is in, in Australia. When you, for, just for one example, over 60% of all beef produced in Australia um, comes from a feedlot in excess of 10,000 animals. Now, and, and it goes up to, you know, feedlots are a lot greater than that. Uh, animal transport regulations. We've just come through in Scotland two uh, really uh, detailed animal and transit welfare consultations. Um, animal welfare and transit, sorry, consultations, one from the Scottish Government, one from DEFRA, that everybody's had to look at. And we're very, very strict and proud of these standards. That's not the case in Australia. You can travel up to 48 hours without the need for even having water um, and transport. And we don't use hormones. These are the kind of things that, you know, it just doesn't happen. So environmental standards, we've got three things at the top of the agenda. We're looking at environment, climate change, food production is key to both of these. Um, so the standards are completely different. They're poles apart. Yeah, and I think, Abby, I would add that uh, I think what summarises the position really is that a farmer in Wales or Scotland or England or Northern Ireland would literally be facing prosecution and possibly even imprisonment if they did things that are routinely done and, and are perfectly legal in Australia. That's how huge the gulf is between our standards and their standards. You know, we would literally be in court if we did what is allowed routinely on those farms. And there are other aspects in terms of this in, imbalance that, that need, that need um, also considering, a, you know, like, you know, Marty's already said that, um, you know, the, uh, about the LFA issue, you know, Wales similarly is 80% LFA area. But on top of that, um, we have different employment law, um, we have different taxation rates on fuel, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a whole, you know, when it comes to Australia, and maybe more so with other trade deals, things like minimum wages are a huge, huge difference that that add to that imbalance that that creates an un, uneven playing field and i think from the devolves point of view and that'll be ourselves wales and northern ireland it's, it'll disproportionately affect us probably in comparison to england although it'll still be a massive um issue for england but because the rural economy is so dependent on agriculture it's the biggest part of the sort of rural economy particularly in the devolves and you know for that then it affects people because you've got that social economic values um, you know, the environment. And if we're looking after the environment in areas like ours, um, you know, that's key to the to, to the tourism, which is a, a second biggest part in, in Scotland. And I'm sure Wales is the same because a lot of the environment we have has been carved by and shaped by livestock production. I definitely want to come back to that point about the devolved nations being dis disproportionately hit. Um, but just to stay with standards for a minute... It has been suggested in the press that Australian imports under any tariff-free deal will have to meet UK standards. Martin, are you confident that that will happen and how easy will it be to make that happen? No, uh, I'm not confident that will happen. I mean, there is, I mean, it's, it's always the claim that, yeah, whatever imports do come in here um, will meet the same standards as what we are doing in, in, the, in the UK. But the reality is 
the standards are not the same in the country of Australia. So why are we importing from a country that doesn't have the same standards? This is about specifics and small amounts. But you know, we, we could possibly get hoodwinked in by one or two container loads that maybe meets these standards. What's going to happen with the rest? Will it all be scrutinised? I very much doubt it. So I'm seriously concerned about that. Nick, what would you say to those commentators? And there are plenty of them around. I've seen a fair few of them on Twitter. Um, they're who, who are accusing farming unions of taking a protectionist stand here. You know, they're saying if Australian imports do, in fact, I mean, take, take on board what Martin's just said, but if they do meet UK standards, is there a legitimate argument to, to keep them out? Well, I think you have to remember that the, inter, you know, the definition in their view of, of, of um, equivalent standards is not what we would call a, a, an honest definition. So that, you know, they will not be the same standards as, as we have here. And I would say in response to those accusations, what is wrong with being protectionist about our incredibly high standards uh, when it comes to animal welfare, when it comes to the environment and all those other things that we value and indeed protecting our communities. Um, you know, I think we are mind-bogglingly naive in our, as a country or as a, you know, as a group of countries, in our obsession with wanting to be a free market, you know, the, the leaders in the free market, because countries like Australia are simply interested in, in what is best for them. They are not interested in this principle of, of being anti-protectionists, and, and in many other regards, they are indeed protectionists. Protectionism is about, is about protecting, you know, your, your, the interests of your nation. Um, and that includes, you know, creating your, uh, protecting your interests environmentally in terms of climate change, protecting your food supplies, avoiding food security problems. Um, you know, um, in 2007 and eight, you know, we saw a, a very, very sudden change in the availab availability of food across the world. And we saw a little bit of that happening at the beginning of the pan pandemic. Now, imagine if we were in a situation where we were even more reliant on food imports um, and we had a, a pandemic of a disease that is more dangerous and more transmissible. And we were relying on, on you know, food factories the other side of the globe. To, to, you know, those food, food factories would very quickly um, ensure that they're not having, that, that, you know, that they don't export valuable food to the other side of the globe. Um, so there are a whole host of, of issues here. We need to find that balance between um, protecting what is important to us and our high standards, etc., um, and finding those new market opportunities. I think this is about protecting it for our consumers as well. You know, it's about protecting the interests of our nation, as Nick says, and, and that's you know that that has to be that has to be paramount. It's not about protectionist for 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 UK farmers, and um, although that's key to it. But I mean, when you look at what's happened during the pandemic, and the pandemic's been a disaster right across the globe. But what it has done is it's because of the food service sector shutting down, and that's been I know a serious disaster for. For, for many industries, and it's hit them, other industries, the food service sector, worse than it has agriculture uh, to, to a large degree. Um, but what it has done is it's focused our consumers' minds more on, on food security, not just about um, having enough of it, but also about how it's grown, the standards it's reared to, and because of that food service sector, which takes about, it's probably about a third of our consumption in, a normal, in, in, in normal times. And of course, people have been more focused, so they haven't gone into the food service sector and accepted, you know, realistically how many people go out to a restaurant or a fast food place and ask where the food comes from. But they've been picking that food off the supermarket shelf, the local grocer, the local butchers, and the butchers have had a fantastic go 
um, throughout this, which has been great because it's focused people's minds on local food and people have been cooking more. So I think the consumer is needing protection here as well because they will know that if they're using our products, then they were having a safe uh, product that's been reared, grown with environmental concerns and climate change concerns in the best interest. Because realistically, as Nick said, if we become more reliant on people to produce food in other parts of the world, it doesn't really tie in with climate change. You know, we're just offshoring our emissions to areas that's going to take full advantage and uh, with don't have the same environmental or climate change concerns as we do here in the UK. And I think you also need to bear in mind um, what's happening in Argentina at the moment. Um, the risk to us of relying on a country uh, for whatever product it is, is exemplified by what's happening in Argentina, which is basically saying, right, we are now going to ban all exports of beef for 30 days. So suddenly, if we were reliant on Argentina to any extent, or indeed Australia, and they suddenly did that for their own national interests, um, all of a sudden you've got a, you've got a shortage that you, and you've lost your domestic industry uh, in the meantime that, is, that can fill that gap. Mm. I guess the fundamental question is, do you think there's something worth protecting here? Um, I just want to move on now to um, the devolution topic that we touched on really briefly earlier. Um, I want to explore the impact that you think trade deals like this could have on internal UK government relationships. So, Martin, we've had the leader of the SNP at Westminster, Ian Blackford, say a zero-tariff deal would end a way of life which has endured for generations. This, the use of that, like, that kind of language suggests that this issue is going to add fuel to the independence fire. Is that something anything Scotland is concerned about? Yeah, inevitably it will. There's no question it will add add weight to that argument. Um, you know whether it's for or against, it'll certainly fuel that. It'll, it'll undoubtedly will will fuel the argument. And uh, so it's not in the. You know it appears that it's not in the best interests of the UK government making rash decisions like this. Um, if they're so concerned about uh, keeping the union together, and 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 that that is a concern because what that does is it focuses people people's minds on on uh, different issues rather than the issues that's, that's immediate to us. You know, we've got a lot of issues to sort out uh, without having a sort of a, a, a constitutional um, issue taken over from, from the, the sort of real main issues we have around health and education, environment, such like. Um, so I think that's going to fuel that debate undoubtedly, and, and it's decisions like this that's not going to help. Mm. Nick, can you give us a Welsh perspective on this? Do you think these kind of deals are going to put additional strain on the relationship between the Welsh government and the UK government? Yeah, they absolutely will. I mean, firstly, just to say, you know, the political landscape in Wales is so different from Scotland in that, in that the sort of constitutional stuff into relating to independence is, you know, based on the, the most recent election results. Um, you know, it's just not there, and it may be in future, but it is absolutely not there. But we've what we've got is a polarisation um, whereby or in England-Wales polarisation, you might say, where, you know, Labour has really, really held on strongly, quite, you know, the opposite of what happened in the council elections in England. Wales has actually increased its hold on Wales here. And it's a, it's a relatively left-wing Labour that we have here in Wales. So you have a, you know, so you have a, a, in England and Wales governments that are at the opposite end of the political spectrum. So there's already an, an inherent problem there. Um, you might say, uh, or difference at least. Um, and of course it is, yes, it absolutely is going to add political pressure. 
And at the end of the day, um, you know, we are, we are dependent on England um, allocating funds, etc. And we're already see, starting to see uh, moves that, that, that are attempting to sort of bypass devolution um, so that funding comes more directly from, from London rather than via Cardiff, which is already causing some, some rows. And, in, and at the end of the day, you know, we, we have seen a massive cut, as has Scotland, to the funding that we receive um, that replaces CAP funding. So a massive, massive, you know, more than £100 million less than, than uh, we expected this year. So, you know, at the end of the day, there's huge scope for that sort of uh, cut or, or policy influence to, ha to cause huge, huge rows with farmers caught in the crossfire at the end of the day and suffering. Well, you just preempted my next question there, which was what kind of impacts will these political rows have on farmers on the ground? Martin, what do you think about that in respect of Scotland? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, always all the sort of political, you know, as a union, NFU Scotland are, have always been 100%, you know, apolitical. We, we're not interested in the politics behind anything. We're, what we're interested in is what's in the best interest of of uh, Scottish farmers. And that's what we're there. We're there to lobby. We need to lobby UK government and the Scottish government in a whole raft of different issues. I mean, this is going to obviously flare tensions from that perspective. But when it comes to, um, you know, the politics behind it, yeah, we try and take the politics out of things all the time, at every occasion, because we need to have access to Westminster. We need to have access to the Scottish government, um, and for a lobbying organisation, um, to have a, you know, we don't want to close doors in our face, but we need to be able to lobby, and the only way we can lobby is having access to both governments. Um, but this, that you know, this is going to cause tensions. I'm sure this will cause tensions, and that's going to make it probably more challenging for us. But at the end of the day, what we've got to fight for is what's in the best interests of farmers and crofters right throughout Scotland. And uh, and 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 deals like this being rushed through. And I'm just going to go back to that. This is, you know, trade deals tend to take a long time to get sorted out. This seems to be a real rush to go through. And and coming back to the sort of lack of scrutiny on it. The Trade Agricultural Commission that hasn't been set up yet was promised it was put in legislation that, that should be up and running to scrutinise any deal before it was signed in the dotted line. It's not there yet and it hasn't had the ability to scrutinise that and that's really frustrating. So again, that's not that's adding fuel to the fire. A nice easy one for you now, Nick, then. Are you more or less concerned about other trade deals coming down the track after this past week's news? Oh, far, far more concerned. Um, you know, it's clearly, once you set a precedent it makes it a lot more difficult to argue against giving similar liberal access to the next country that you're, you're discussing things with. And at the end of the day, you know, we're being told that the Australian deal is a stepping stone to the CPTPP, um, you know, South Pacific uh, um, trading area. Um, and yes, there, there, there may well be opportunities in those markets, but at the end of the day, I think you have to bear in mind, you know, you know who is in the South Pacific? You know, you've got Brazil, you've got Australia, you've got Argentina, you've got these major agricultural producing nations that already um, have their feet well and truly under the table uh, in, in markets in Indonesia and places like that. So, yes, we have to do our best to get into those markets um, in whatever way we can, you might argue. Um, but we also be, need to be very, very realistic about how difficult that is when others are already established there. And we, you know, those new markets 
should be something that complements our established markets in the EU primarily, which is on our doorstep, a prosperous market on our doorstep. Um, it, to try and think that it will somehow replace um, our the markets in our neighbouring countries um, is just mind-bogglingly naive. We've already had access for, 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 for decades to many of these other countries through our membership of the EU. Um, and we have tried very hard to, to grow sales in these various uh, other countries. Um, and we have in many respects, but we've, we've, you know, at the end of the day, it's been very, very hard and very fragile. And, uh, you know, the growth is, is from very low levels to higher levels and it's still marginal. Martin, how about you? Same question. And also, you've mentioned the Trade and Agriculture Commission a couple of times. Do you think that that's been rendered impotent by the fact that most of these big deals are already underway and the tech isn't scrutinising them? Yeah, well, the, the, the first bit of the question is, I'm every bit as worried as Nick on the sort of cumulative aspect, because, I mean, we were talking about, and that's why we were so keen to have some form of TRQ in place, because the scale... We keep getting told. We keep getting told um, about the you know the opportunities for the export, and this is not about you know agriculture not wanting to expand and and you know export to other parts of the world, but it's the scale that's involved. So from an agricultural perspective, when you look how they've done the the Japan deal, which is one of the ones that was a sort of rollover from the EU, there was agricultural sensitivities on sensitivities on, on a lot of products like agricultural products was taken into account. So there's TRQs put in place. So why can't they do the same with Australia? Because then that limits the the opportunity. I mean, if 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 we're talking about scale, yeah, we can export. That's really exporting high-end, a lot of product to Australia. I don't really see that. Yeah, we could get some in, I'm sure. But if it's going to be free access, well, what's the sort of quantity we could put in in comparison to the quantity um, coming back? I just think, yeah, it's, it's a stark comparison. So we can't, we, we can't, um, you know, we could never, ever compete in that basis. And on the, on the, stat, on the statutory um, Trade Agricultural Commission, this was, and when you go back to the debate through the agricultural bill in Westminster, and of course it went back and forward from the Lords um, two or three times, uh, there was various amendments, there was the Lord Curry amendment, the Lord Grantchester amendment, that wanted to really push for the standards being on the face of the bill. Both these amendments were dropped in favour of, of the, the, the final amendment that, that, that went through um, to that would provide this statutory Trade Agricultural Commission that would scrutinise deals. Now that's not happened yet. It's not up and running. There's still debate about you know we I, we don't know who's chairing it, who's going to be on it, um, what form it's going to take. It's not up and running, and that was designed to look at deals before they were signed and sealed. Now. Again, there was going to be agreement on a deal before it went to the start tax, which was granted. Um, but the fact that that um, the start tax not been there to actually look at them, you know, and 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 before it's signed on, as uh, is, is really worrying. I mean, it seems you know why why say you're going to have this full scrutiny, parliamentary scrutiny, um, and it's not happened. And this 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 rush is really. Concerning because this is about shaking hands at the at the G seven. This is what this is a this is a real push to get this done. And of course, once that's done, trying to rewind that and and pull it back is going to be incredibly difficult. Yeah, and at, at the end at the end of the day, you know all these political shenanigans, um, you you can sort of almost uh, filter them down to the fact that what's happening goes completely against the assurances given in the Conservative manifesto 
and repeatedly by government ministers about genuinely maining, maintaining our standards. Um, finally, because I want to end the discussion on a positive note, um, I'd like you to spell out some opportunities for UK farmers in an Australian trade deal. It seems to me as though our ministers are arguing about how much access Australian farmers are going to get to the UK market, but their Aussie counterparts aren't doing the same. So has the UK government not made clear where it's seeking opportunities for our farmers? Are there any? Uh, Nick, do you want to go first? I think Martin has already made it clear that, you know, that, you know the opportunities for selling agricultural produce in Australia in a, what is, at the end of the day, a major agricultural producing nation that produces you know primarily uh you know lamb beef and and wool uh you know those opportunities are negligible um and also we need to bear in mind the population of those countries you know um australia is 25 million i think you know new zealand's probably about six million you know they're, they're fairly tiny markets compared with the 400 odd million that we've got on our doorstep in the eu and we always you know we need to Bear that in the, have that in the back of our minds continuously that anything that jeopardizes our trade with the EU is jeopardizing trade with a, a, a with a market that is far far bigger than these these other countries for us. Um, so you know, I don't. I I would I would uh, take any predictions of of, of uh, increases in exports to places like Australia. Um, that benefit Wales or indeed Scotland, uh, I would take them with a huge pinch of salt, I'm afraid. Nick doesn't want to end on a positive note. <laughs> 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 how, about, how about you, Martin? Do you want yeah, yeah, well, anything positive? To, to be honest, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always positive. My glass is always half full, especially if it's a, a bottle of Aberfeldy 12-year-old sitting beside it. It's, uh, it's always half full. But, and, and I'm trying to be positive, but, but it's, it's very difficult to be. I mean, we want to export. We have got a high-end product here that we want to export, and uh, but but again, you know, Nick said it's we've, it's we've covered it before. In comparison, it's a drop in the ocean. Uh, it really is a drop in the ocean of what the damage could be uh, you know, coming the other way. To get a, a, a small amount into, you know, we're a massive market here, and 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 we do have our our main export, and from a Scottish perspective, our biggest export is south of the border, and then it's across into Europe. So we've got a huge home market here that appreciates our food. Um, we've got all these things, as I said before, climate change is the top of the agenda. Why are we flying and shipping food all the way around the world, back and forward, when we can have our consumers here in our own country relying on a high-end quality product with environmental considerations and animal welfare considerations at the top of their mind and they can uh, fully appreciate the fact they've got a great quality product they can consume at home. So there's a good positive to leave you with. <laughs> you snuck one in there at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us, Martin. Nick. Thank you. No bother. Thank you. Up next, we're speaking to Georgie Styles about DEFRA's consultation on a lump sum retirement scheme and dealing to payments in England. The lump sum exit scheme will offer a payment capped at £100,000 to older farmers to allow them to retire with dignity. Ministers hope the arrangements, which will be introduced alongside a new entrance scheme and a future farm resilience fund, will free up land for the younger generation. The consultation is also seeking views on how to calculate delinked payments, which from 2024 will separate direct support from the amount of land farmed. 
Broadly speaking, farm groups have welcomed the consultation, but the Long Workers Alliance has expressed grave concerns about the proposals. Georgie, before you outline your concerns for us, can you tell us what you do like about the government's plans? Do they have the potential to do any good? Thanks, Abby. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I really agree with the government that these schemes could really open up uh, a vast amount of opportunities for new entrants to agriculture. Um, but there will need to be sort of significant input above and beyond what the government are proposing uh, to ensure that the correct mechanisms and conditions are put in place to um, really present these opportunities to new entrants um, and also to make sure that the schemes, you know, are sufficient and desirable to retiring farmers. Um, there's a lot that's been proposed that's really promising, um, such as the linking up of um, these schemes to other ones that DEFRA are working on at the moment, such as the new entrant support scheme, um, which I'm also sort of currently consulting on, um, as well as the sustainable farming incentive uh, and the plans to bring in other incentives for engaging in practices such as woodland creation and landscape restoration. Um, you know, and I definitely encourage any support that can be given to farmers to create more sustainable and ecologically centred businesses um, and to really take some of the pressures off to allow for these practices to, to happen and also to be implemented across the whole farming business. Um, and there's also been, as you've mentioned, um, sort of reference to the Future Farm Incentive Fund, um, sorry, the Future Farm Resilience Fund, which, you know, will hopefully help farmers to do this. Um, so, yeah, so I'd say in essence, I think that they are really promising and that they could really support the the kind of long overdue shift that we need in in the farming sector in this country. Um, you know, we're at such a critical point in planetary history that um, a lot of the things that the government are proposing um, could really be the right steps that we need to kind of make sure that um, this restructuring of our farming systems happen and that we kind of move towards a more sort of thriving, young and diverse farming landscape. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential in there. And now for your concerns, can you explain to us what they are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I guess one of the, the biggest concerns is that um, all of the things that I've just laid out uh, sort of won't happen in, in the sort of substantial way that we need. Um, so the government in these schemes haven't actually uh, stated how, the, how they will support new entrants um, to gain access to these opportunities or how the government will support environmental best practice. Um, you know, it's all well and good saying that they'll link up with these schemes, but I'd really like to sort of know more um, of the details of that. Um, for example, one of the biggest opportunities um, that the D-Link and Lump Sum present, um, yet one of the biggest concerns is land. Um, so the idea is that land can be sort of sold, rented or gifted, um, but there's huge loopholes within this, um, such as the selling of land would mean that it would be open to market prices. Um, and, you know, there's a huge focus on opening up opportunities for new entrants, but um, the selling of land at, at these sort of high prices will completely uh, outprice new entrants um, who don't have the resources to compete with already large landowners um, and development businesses. Um, so this would then sort of go towards the further consolidation of land um, in this country. Uh, you know, there's nothing also to say that the, the land that will be sold will come with any dwellings um, or sort of agricultural buildings, again, which is a huge barrier for new entrants who don't have the resources um, to kind of go through the long endurance of planning permission and to access finance to, to get these buildings up and running for them to start their businesses. Um, you know, there's also worries in uh, the selling off of land um, that tenants are currently on. And so the difficulties that this could uh, be um, for tenants 
sorry, the difficulties that then will face tenants in this. Um, there's also been nothing to say that new entrants will be prioritised for any new land that's available, um, you know, either in the buying or the selling of land. Um, and so, you know, there's every possibility that a landowner could gift the land to a family member who's not a part of their um, business already um, and still receive the payment. So, you know, I really think that there needs to make sure that the land can be properly transferred um, over to new entrants. Um, you know, there's there's also nothing that's been put in place in terms of the environmental protection. There's a lot that's sort of been said that they hope that this um, scheme could encourage woodland creation and land restoration, as I said. Um, you know, but there, there's nothing that's actually been laid out to ensure that this would happen. Um, and lastly, I guess one of the big concerns against um, the farming community is that these schemes won't even be sufficient for farmers, uh, for retiring farmers um, and, you know, to really incentivise them. Um, you know, similar schemes have been rolled out in Australia and Ireland uh, before this, although we have no sort of um, previous history of schemes like this in this country. Um, and only a really small percentage of farmers took them up um, and any newly available land, uh, you know, just did did lead to the further consolidation um, by already large landowners. And, and actually, they led to the loss of small scale farmers and producers in Ireland. So, you know, it's a really big concern that this could happen in this country, too. Mm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will also be concerned to think that this could lead to greater consolidation. Um, is there anything that the government can do to address these concerns? Because they are quite serious, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as I said, there's a lot of opportunity and it seems like the government are kind of going down the right way to, you know, ensure that there is environmental protection and new entrant support. But there's a lot that needs to be done to ensure that that actually happens. Um, so what we're proposing at the Landworkers Alliance and we're working with Sustain and a few other organisations on this is to ensure that there's sort of a robust criteria and uh, mechanism um, sort of put in place to make sure that these things happen. So, for example, we're asking that um, the land, any newly available land um, through the schemes um, is there for new entrants uh, and that it's prioritised for new entrants. And, you know, this means that there would need to be really strong links created with the new entrant support scheme that DEF is working on at the moment. Um, there's been talk that there will be uh, links to this scheme, but so far, as I say, there hasn't been anything laid out. Um, and, you know, there needs to be really sort of strong uh, channels for support attached to this um, to ensure that new entrants not only are prioritised in accessing the land, but then are also prioritised in um, having support through access to finance, um, access to local markets as well, um, sort of training and, and mentorship to ensure that they can kind of give um, the best sort of environmental practice on the land. Um, also, you know, there's many other uh, parts that uh, new entrants need help with in terms of sort of machinery. And, you know, there's a lot of knowledge within these farmers that are potentially going to retire. And so it'd be a huge loss to um, the sort of British farming sector if we didn't um, transfer that knowledge onto the new entrants on the land. So I think some kind of support within that um, would be really valuable and you know whether that's kind of also the co-use or or the transparency of machinery as well um so there's a lot of things that the government can kind of put in place in in ensuring new entrants um can sort of have a seamless transition onto the land um there also you know needs to be absolutely conditions built into both of the schemes to ensure that there's no further um, environmental degradation or damage um, of any of the land and also that the land must be kept in in agricultural use um, 
you know, there should also be, uh, there's, there's sort of links to the Farming Resilience Fund and, and there should also be support for farmers, you know, who are retiring from the sector um, in terms of managing their sort of environmental and psychological um, uh, sort of the impacts of, of transferring and retiring um, their, from their livelihood. Uh, so yeah, so there's lot there's lots that can be done to ensure that the government can kind of go forward with the plans that they've set out. Um, but we really need to see this being written down in in sort of clear mechanisms. Mm. Do you need Do you think there need to be any other changes made in order to fulfil the potential of these proposals? I know the Tenant Farmers Association has called for the minimum length of time on a new lease to be ten years rather than five years to drive innovation, resilience, resilience, and environmental improvement. Do you agree with that? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I would say that, yeah, tenancies really need to be moved towards sort of 10 years or more. Um, you know, such short term, uh, short, sorry, such short term tenancies, um, you know, really holding back the progression of, of the farming sector. Um, and, you know, longer term tenancies will just allow for uh, for security for for the tenant, which will then you know come with so many benefits in in terms of allowing them to engage in longer term environmental practice and really build up the diversity of the landscape. You know, these a lot of these things take time, um, and so to really then implement this into the sort of wider farming business and the strategy for the business, um, and also you know the emotional investment and the sort of uh, physical. Um, aspects that it takes to move your whole sort of farm or begin a farm on a piece of land um, and so if you know you know that you've got a sort of long-term tenancy ahead of you then you can really uh, get the stability of that and invest your time and energy into making the business as um, as good as it can be um, and you know also to then fully establish themselves um, particularly in terms of new entrants uh, in terms of really creating sort of strong markets um, and yeah, as I say, investing in machinery and environmental protection, which then, you know, can be kind of moved on um, when they move on to the next tenancy. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely agree that sort of 10 years or more would be much more uh, beneficial um, to farmers entering the land. Sadly, that's about all we have time for this month. Thank you to all three of our guests, Martin, Nick and Georgie, for a really interesting discussion. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed the show. We will, of course, be back soon with more. But in the meantime, why not subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of Over the Farm Gate? Until next month, from us at FG, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now.